Our sermon for today is titled, The Battle is the Lord's. The Battle is the Lord's. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before Thee, O God. We thank Thee for Thy grace and Thy mercy. Lord, we ask for Thy power, the power of Thy Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to teach us, to draw us into all truth, Thy truth, O God. Lord Jesus, that Thou wouldst be lifted up in our hearts, we might know Thee and serve Thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The battle is the Lord's. The text for our sermon comes to us from 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, and verse 47, which reads, And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. These words come from David, who was not king at that time, but was a shepherd boy, as he stood before Goliath. He said these words to that great Philistine giant named Goliath. The words he said. And we all know the story of David and Goliath, I think. Most of us do. We're all pretty familiar with it. It's even in pop culture, people are familiar with it. There's David, the poor shepherd boy whose brothers were mighty warriors in Israel's army. And David, the little one, the youngest one, was left to tend to the sheep, his family's sheep, his father's sheep. His brothers went off to war, but he stayed back and tended to the sheep. But as is often God's manner, David learned much in the lowliest of all duties, being a shepherd boy. And this would later equip him in God's service. We should never bemoan, dear church, our circumstances that we are in or our present employments. But we should always look to God's providence in them and learn what he, the God of providence, has for us. We shouldn't complain about what situation we are in, what job we have, where we live. We should never complain about that, but learn what God has for us. Realize that this is part of the providence of God, that he has placed us here, that he has something for us here, and that we should then seek to know what it is and seek to be obedient to him in it and seek to learn what he has to teach us through it. And David did just this. David was the small shepherd boy. His brothers, these well-trained and well-equipped soldiers in King Saul's army. But... The Philistines were waging a war against Israel. King Saul was waging a war with them. And these Philistines came and they had this one massive giant, giant man named Goliath in their ranks. And the Israelites were afraid. But when David, who was back tending to the sheep, ended up hearing by soldiers who were traveling that the Philistines mocked and defied Israel and her God, he could no longer hold his peace. He couldn't remain sitting in the field saying to the sheep when the Philistines were mocking both Israel and her God. The armies of Saul sat there shaking and trembling before the Philistines and this giant Goliath who was head and shoulders above the rest and carried this massive spear that is said to be like a weaver's beam and a sword. He had thick metal armor on. He looked like he could never be defeated. They sat there shaking in their armor before the Philistines. King Saul and his army. While they were sitting there shaking their armor, David rose up from tending to the sheep in righteous anger. He was determined that the reproach of the Philistines be taken from Israel. Read that in 1 Samuel 17.26. For Goliath defied the armies of Israel. He was determined that, that reproach would be taken away. But not only this, as David says, they only defied, these Philistines not only defied 
Israel, but the armies of the living God. These were God's people. They carried his name upon their banner. And he, this Philistine Goliath giant, was defying and mocking. He wanted this reproach taken away. David went to King Saul. He volunteered himself to his service, to be in the army, to fight. He vowed to slay the giant Philistine warrior. But when Saul, King Saul, questioned him how he, some shepherd boy, was going to kill this giant, David revealed what he had learned from the God of Providence while tending to his father's sheep. He told King Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and he took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and I smote him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. So he says, Listen, here's how I'm going to do it. The same God that allowed me to overcome these massive, vicious beasts, bears and lions, will, will just as likely, and I'm sure of it, if, he's, if he delivered me from these wild beasts that no man can overcome, what is this uncircumcised, wicked Philistine who mocks the God of Israel to that? He will surely deliver me from this Philistine's hand, just as he did from the lions and the bears. David had intimately learned the power of God to deliver him by experience, by experiential Christian faith, real, true religion, practical religion. His faith in Jehovah, his God, did not waver at the mighty beasts. So why should it waver at this wicked man who opposed not only his people, but his own God? King Saul then said, all right, David, go do it. And so he offered to equip David with his own personal armor, the armor the king himself wore, the very best armor. But David found that the protection of man was a hindrance to him rather than an aid. He would wear the armor of God by faith. Well, the rest is history. We know that David then went out to meet Goliath, all of Israel, all of the Philistines were gathered together, the armies. And that David went out to meet Goliath. And when Goliath began to mock, he responded, this is David speaking, he says, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. All these things are man's power. But I, David, come unto thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, God's power, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And then he gave Goliath, that great giant, a promise. He promised that he would be slain so that, quote, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly, everyone who's gathered here, both the Philistines and my own people, the Israelites, shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So David knew that it would be something similar to when God delivered him from lions and bears. It wouldn't be by David's own strength but it would be a supernatural work of God, an equipping of God. Goliath was then slain by this shepherd boy, by a mere sling and stone. By a mere sling and stone. Then the Philistines were overtaken by Israel's army right after that. 
the Lord won the battle through his people's faith. So too, Jesus, our greater David, the good shepherd, stands before us and slays our, all of our enemies. Our greater David, Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, stands before us and slays our enemies. The battle is his and not ours. Saul's armor will profit us nothing. Faith alone accomplishes the victory, dear Christian. Why? Because our salvation is God's battle to win, not ours. As the Apostle John says, remember in 1 John 5, 4, he says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Not our working by the flesh, not our armor given to us by King Saul, not the righteousness of our deeds or our good works or our working at all, but what overcometh the world, our victory, is our faith. Our faith in Christ, our complete trust and hope and rest in Him. So let us, dear church, come to know that the battle is the Lord's, which is our theme today. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 3 in the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by that? Well, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. They're poor. They look in themselves and they see that there's nothing in that account. They can do nothing to obtain spiritual gain, to obtain the kingdom of heaven. They're blessed Because they are poor in spirit, they put no hope in themselves. These are the ones that will overcome. They will be given the kingdom of heaven because it will be won for them and given to them. So therefore, in all of life's battles, dear Christian, let us remember that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us, as Paul says in Romans 8, 37. The fact that the battle is the Lord's does not nullify our duty to partake in it. You must remember that. Indeed, we must fight, but we have to fight by faith, not by our power. We must leave room for God's power, and there is no room for God alongside Saul's armor, dear Christian. Let's look at three points today. Number one, the fact that the battle is the Lord's. The fact. Number two, what influence this has on our minds. Number three, how we should live in light of this truth. First, the fact of the matter, the battle is the Lord's, not ours. The battle is the Lord's, but what does he battle for? What does he fight for? What is this battle? Does he fight the battle for our physical and temporal gain? No. The Lord's war is a war for truth, for righteousness, for holiness, for love. And he also wars not only for those things, but he also wars against those things which he hates. He fights for our, for our soul, for our salvation. For our spiritual good, he who attempts to labor for that which perisheth by keeping his life shall lose it. As we learn about in Isaiah 55, 2, John 6, 27, and Matthew 10, 39, where Jesus says, if we keep our life, we shall lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we shall gain it. The psalmist states that God will gird his sword upon his thigh and ride into battle. Why? For what? Because of truth and meekness and righteousness, he says in Psalm 45, verses 3 and 4. So God does not defend sin or wickedness. He fights for spiritual victory, spiritual good, righteousness, holiness. Therefore, we are called to forsake sin and unrighteousness, not stand for it or live in it. How then could God wage war to defend and uphold sin and unrighteousness if we ourselves are called to fight against it and to put it off? 
God does not give victory to sin. Rather, he triumphs over sin, hell, and Satan. Let's learn also that his name and glory are the object or chief end of his battle. This is a fact that God wages the battle. The battle is of the Lord. So in that battle, his name and glory are the chief end. That's what he's, the chief end of that battle is his name and his glory. It is his honor to see righteousness established in the earth. The gospel greatly glorifies God, as we know. Men slash at this gospel. They slash at the divine honor of God when they oppose the gospel. And the Lord shall vindicate his own name, shall he not? When we wage war, when we wage gospel war, dear church, and we are upholding the standard of the gospel in the heat of the battle as the flag bearer does, our battle then becomes God's battle. Nothing glorifies God more than the gospel. And thus, it is his place of greatest defense on the battlefield. He puts all of his best defensive weapons there. And he employs all of his greatest offensive weapons for the gospel. The gospel, both in its offense and its defense, are defended and worked and empowered by God. Jehovah, in protecting his people, says in Isaiah 48:11, For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? The Lord's name is his person, his being. It represents all that he is. And his name is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 Thus, God shall wage a holy and mighty war for his gospel. For how shall his name be polluted by its failure? He won't let that happen. The gospel is his very power. His glory and his name is his goal. The gospel is his own power. As we read about in Romans 1.16, it's the sword that God uses to win peace. And the gates of hell, as Jesus says, shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16.18. Thus, since this is a fact that it's God's power, the battle belongs to the Lord, thus we learn that we can only fight by his power. The Holy Spirit is our strength, not ourself, not our works, not our determination, not our discipline, but the Holy Spirit. When Paul exhorts us to put off sin, meaning to mortify it, to battle against it, to war against our own flesh, he does not point us to the armor of the flesh. The armor that comes, to, comes from us, our determination. What does he point us to? He points us to spiritual armor. Remember in Ephesians 6, the armor of God. He reminds us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, or they're not of the flesh, but mighty through God. 2 Corinthians 10.4 We are not to use then, therefore, carnal weapons. Not the armor of Saul, but spiritual weapons. We are to walk in the Spirit. And it is then, and only then, that we shall be empowered to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's only then that we'll be able to do this. Only then, when we walk by the Spirit, not when we walk by self, not when we walk by flesh, not when we try to get our, our fleshly weapons, but when we use the weapons of God, spiritual weapons, and we walk in the Spirit, it's only then that we'll be able 
to have the power to not fulfill the lust of the flesh, as Galatians 5.16 says. We can do nothing without the Lord. Jesus says this in John 15.5. If we can do nothing without Jesus, how much less can we be expected to be able to war against sin, to war against Satan, to war against the temptations and wickedness of this world? Well, we can't. We have to walk in the Spirit. The battle is God's in the very highest degree. Therefore, when we see the hosts of enemies against us, as Christians, when we see the world standing against us, we see Satan and his temptations and his discouragement standing against us. When we see sin rising up out of our own flesh and tempting us and the old man rising back up within us, when we see all of that happening, these hosts of enemies against us, let us pray like they did in Second Chronicles 20, verse 12. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Let that be our prayer. A prayer that recognizes that we have no might, no power to fight against the host that is before us and Satan, sin, flesh, and the world. But let us say that our eyes are upon God, upon thee, O God. Remember also, dear Christian, God has commanded us to fight. It's not an option. At our ruler's order, we go up unto this warfare. We are not free men. Our life is not our own. Rather, we were purchased at a great price, namely the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 2. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this. So as Christians... We are enlisted into God's army. Paul commands Timothy, remember, to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold, military terms, lay hold on eternal life. Take it by force. This was because Timothy was called of God to this very purpose. As Paul reminds him, he says, Whereunto thou art also called. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. He was to fight the good fight of faith. He was to lay hold on eternal life. Because he was called unto this very purpose. We are warriors, dear Christians, under God's command. We are warriors. We do not have the right to sit the battle out, to stay in the fields, tending to the sheep. We must be at the front line fighting the battle. We must fight. You know, some Calvinists, we, we hear this all the time, and we're accused of this by, you know, Arminians will say you guys don't care about reaching the lost, or sharing the gospel because you just think the elect are going to be the elect and that's it. And, you know, they're right in some ways. There are people that are like this. Some Calvinists are not motivated to preach the gospel to the lost because, well, only God can convert his elect. Well, this is true. God alone can save a man. It is his battle alone that he can win. No one else can do it. However, we are still called, as Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 15, into all the world. We're called to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The battle is God, but he has employed us as his soldiers to fight in it. So know that in God's sovereignty, in his providence, in his power, his omnipotence, it is he who fights our spiritual battles for us. However, we must still fight. Only he can gain the victory. It's his power alone that can give us anything, that can accomplish anything. However, he has commanded and called us to go out and fight, and we must fight. The battle is his, but we are employed as his soldiers. He has also promised. 
He's promised to fight this battle. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, The reward promised to his son, the covenant of grace, and the distinct pledges of his word make it his battle. His fidelity is engaged to cause the Lord Jesus to divide the spoil with the strong. He must bruise Satan under our feet shortly. So he says that because he's promised a reward to his son, because he established the covenant of grace, and because there's all of these pledges and promises in his word, then that therefore then makes it his battle. He must do it because he said he would. So why will this happen? Why will Christ have the victory? Because he has vouchsafed to do it. You recall in the Abrahamic in the Abrahamic dispensation of the covenant of grace, God spoke this promise unto Abraham. He said, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. Now, on what grounds did God base this promise? Well, on himself, because he could swear by no greater, he then therefore swear by himself. That's Hebrews 6, 13 and 14. So how do we know that God shall accomplish our salvation? How do we know that he's going to accomplish our salvation? Well, because he has said so. Thus, we can say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, he said, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will do it. His wills and shalls are wills and shalls indeed. If he said he will do something, he shall surely do it. And he said that he would have the victory, therefore he must fight the battle. Lastly, on this point, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice that when the battle is fully won, when we are glorified, we're seated with Christ, the new heavens, the new earth, the glory will be unto the Lord alone. No one else will get the glory. And we will be able to proclaim with the psalmist, as he does in Psalm 98, verse 1, He hath triumphed, triumphed gloriously. He hath triumphed gloriously. Second point the influence of this truth on our minds. What influence does it have? It causes us to make light of all opposition that comes against us, to make light, to consider it of no value, to put no great weight into it, the opposition that stands against us. We consider it a light thing. It's not weighty. Why? Because we can ask the question, who can stand against the Lord? Remember, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 37, wrote these amazing words. He said, If God be for us, who can be against us? If the battle is the Lord's, how can it be lost? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things also? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep. For the slaughter. Nay, Paul continues, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The opposition, 
therefore, should seem as nothing. If God be for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through Christ. We are more than conquerors through, through him who loved us. How can we fear when we have the strong man on our side? When the strong man, the deep-chested one, the broad-shouldered one, is the one who carries us? How can we fear when the one who is greater than all the Goliaths and all of the universes is on our side? No, in all these things, we are therefore more than conquerors through him because he loves us. Jesus is a complete savior and he saves completely. Nothing shall undo his work and nothing shall triumph over him. Therefore, if he, Jesus, has employed his powers, these great, astounding powers, all powerful, if he's employed his powers in fighting our battle, it shall be won, indeed. This should cause us to think very little of our enemies, of our flesh, of our sin, of Satan, and of the world. Because we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. It also causes us, it causes our mind, we're talking about the mind, how our mind is affected by the truth that the battle is the Lord's. It causes us, therefore, to have no fear because of our own weaknesses. We don't fear our, oppos- our opposition, and we don't fear our weaknesses. The weakness which we possess in our spiritual life is actually, dear Christian, the very catalyst to our strength. It's the catalyst to our strength. Those who are strong in themselves, those who wear the armor of Saul, have no room for God's strength. But those who take up the smooth stones of the gospel into their slings of faith are given the victory through God's strength, his power, not their own. Those who are well do not need a doctor, but the sick. Those who are righteous do not need salvation, but sinners, as Christ says. The Apostle Paul learned the strength of his weakness intimately. He learned that it was the catalyst to his strength, and he learned this by experience, experiential experiential religion, experiential faith. He learned that his weakness was his strength. Therefore, he did not fear his own weaknesses, but he embraced them as the means to experiencing God's power. He said this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Remember, he was taken up into the third heaven, saw things that he can't even utter. He said, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to fight against me. Lest I should be exalted above measure, and lest I should get so prideful, seeing I basically have no weaknesses, I've seen the greatest things that can be seen, which no tongue can even utter. Lest I should be so exalted in my pride and ego because of that, there was given me a weakness. For this thing, he continues, I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he, the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul continues, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, 
in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I glory in my infirmities. The Lord himself, dear church, will make us mighty in his own fight. The Lord will make us mighty in his own fight. We can pay no mind to our weaknesses, therefore. We don't have to worry about them or fear them. Oh, but I am so weak. How can I be a mighty warrior for God? Well, that weakness that you now see is the strength by which you will fight his, his battles. Why? Because then he can equip you. Because then he can equip you. If you have a bunch of cardboard swords in your arms, you've got a whole bundle of them in your arms, you will not be able to then hold the sword of the Lord. The broad sword, the Scottish long sword in your arms. You won't be able to pick it up and carry it because you've got all of your own junk, your worthless weapons. Rather, embrace your weakness. Realize that these weapons are nothing. Put them down so that you may be equipped by God. He will equip us for his own fight. Our Lord does not expect us, dear Christian, to go to go to warfare at our own to go to warfare at our own charges. At our own pocket, by our own strength. Remember that no soldier goes and finds himself supplies and ammunition when, when you join the army the army here. You don't then go and find your gun and make your ammo and provide yourself with all the supplies you need. No. The army does that. They supply you with those things. And so too in our warfare. Our king is never ungenerous. If he sends us to battle, he will go with us, both to cover our head and to strengthen our arm, both to protect us and strengthen us for battle. If we will but care for his cause, he will care for us. Queen Elizabeth once requested that a merchant leave his, sir, leave his business. She requested that a merchant leave his business and to go abroad on her service. She needed him to go do something. She sent him, I'm going to send you away. Leave your business behind and I'll send you. And he mentioned to her that his own business would then be ruined. If I leave it, if I just abandon it, then I'm not going to make any money. And when I get back, I won't have a business. Here's what she told him. You mind my business and I will mind yours. So the queen herself was to take care of his business and make sure that it continued. That's a pretty good promise. So too, if it be the Lord's battle we are fighting, we may be sure that he will see us through it. If it's his battle, he will accomplish the work necessary in, to, and through us. It encourages us to throw ourselves into the Lord's work heartily. When we know this, our mind then begins to say, wow, the battle is of the Lord. The battle is of the Lord. He will equip us. He will fight for us. It's his victory and not ours. Therefore, let me throw myself into the Lord's work even more heartily. We owe so much to the Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us that we must fight for him. Now, we can never repay his gift to us, but we can honor it. We can't repay it, but we can honor it. 
And seeing that it is by his power that we labor, that we fight, we should labor all the more diligently, should we not? We should throw ourselves into his service. Recall what Paul told the church in Corinth. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he said, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. What is he saying there? He was saying that it was by God's grace that he labored in the gospel for them. And therefore, knowing that it was by God's grace that he labored for, for them in the gospel, he therefore labored all the more abundantly because it was by God's power that he labored. So he had all the more reason to labor more ferociously, more ferociously for God. Work even harder because it's God working for him. If somebody gave you a credit card and said, spend as much money as you can, well, you'd keep spending and spending and spending and spending because it's not your money and you know that it doesn't matter. It's not going to affect you. So too, we have an infinite, an infinite wealth of strength and power in our Lord. In our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can labor for him. We can fight for him knowing that he fights the battle, that we're doing it at his cost, not ours. His battle was the Lord's through him. Paul knew this, so he worked all the harder. It also causes us, dear church, knowing this, to choose the best weapons. If you are given the very best weaponry for free, it's made available to you. The very, very, very best weapons. And, there's, and it said, hey, take these. Use these. Free of cost. Free of charge. They're yours. Take them and use them. Or you can pay for weapons that are not as good. What are you going to do? Well, we would choose the best weapons that are free. So too, knowing that the battle is the Lord's, our mind is then affected to say, I'm going to take these free weapons that are the most powerful weapons. Spurgeon once said, quote, We dare not fire the Lord's cannon with the devil's powder. We dare not fire the Lord's cannon with the devil's power. Powder, sorry. We dare not fire the Lord's cannon with the devil's powder. End quote. That's amazing. So what does that mean? What does that mean? We're not going to use carnal means to accomplish godly ends. Love, truth, zeal, prayer, and patience should be at their best in God's battle. Not their least, not their weakest. We do not peddle God's word for our own gain. Again, we don't use worldly means, worldly systems, methods, worldly church growth methodology to build the church, entertainment, fun, games, cultural trends. We don't use those things to plant and grow the church. So we should not use worldly means, worldly weapons, fleshly weapons, carnal weapons to accomplish godly ends. Rather, we should use godly weapons, spiritual weapons, weapons of power from on high, from Jehovah, to accomplish the ends that he has sent us on. He has sent us on, sent us to battle. It's his battle. And he's equipped us, and he will empower us, and he will fight with us, and it'll be his strength by which we fight. Therefore, we choose the best weaponry. Third and last. How then should we live in light of this truth? How should we live in light of it? So the battle is the Lord's. We see how it affects our mind, how we think correctly now. How then should we live? How should the heart and the mind flow into our hands and feet? 
First, let us make it God's cause that we fight for. How should it affect us? Well, we should make sure that the causes we fight for are God's cause. God's causes. How do we do this? Well, we need to examine our motive. We need to aim at his glory only and keep clear of all fleshly schemes. If you look at your motives and you realize that there's something that you're doing that's just for yourself, that you're trying to do something for you in it, do I really care that God is glorified in this thing? Or am I just doing some church thing, some Christian activity just for the sake of it? And I know that I could probably get something out of it. And even beyond that, in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let us do it for the glory of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We need to aim at his glory. We need to aim at his glory. That's the cause we should be fighting for. Let us also examine our method. Contend for the faith as Jesus would have contended and did contend. How he fought the battle. And not in a way which the Lord would disapprove. If we can look at our method and go, is this how Jesus did it? Did he, did he stick up for his own honor? Did he stick up for his own rights? Did he try to use worldly methodology? No. Okay, so let us not then therefore do it. It's his battle. He's given us the weapons. It's his weaponry. It's his battle. And it's his power. So let us then fight for the faith as he would have us fight for the faith. And last, let us examine our faith. Can we not trust God to fight his own battles? Let us then therefore put no faith in anything else. Sola fide. Faith alone wins the day. Faith alone. Our method, our mind, our heart, our motive, and our faith should all be for this one cause. They should all be employed for this one cause, namely God's cause, God's battle. Next, let us not forget. How then shall we live? Well, let us not forget that it is the Lord's cause, not our own, that we fight for. If we forget this, if we forget that it's the Lord's battle, then we will begin to bring self into it. When we begin to bring self into it, we will then fight for prestige, for personal gain, for personal progress, for worldly ends, for material gain. And we can even begin doing this thinking that we are doing the Lord's work while we're doing it. If we forget that it's the Lord's battle and not our own. Remember the Jews killed Jesus and the apostles thinking that they were doing God's work. They thought they were doing God's work. They put this heretic to death, this arch heretic and his followers. They put them to death. Isn't that what God wanted? They thought that they thought so. So when we forget that it's the Lord's battle, we will begin to bring self into it. We'll begin to do things that are really for our own gain, but we're thinking that it is for God's. We must fight rather for God's work. Fight for God's purposes, for God himself battles for them. God minds the things that he loves. Therefore, we should mind and fight for the things that he loves. Let us follow our master. It is easy, dear Christian, it is easy to mix the leaven of personal gain into the gospel loaf. It's easy to mix the leaven of personal gain into the gospel loaf. So we must beware. 
Just beware of this and following our master and not putting anything even next to God's goal. That is our goal. Our goal should be God's goal, not next to it, not alongside it, not behind it, but it should be identical to God's goal. We should fight for that. If we forget that it is the Lord's battle, then we will begin to judge and weigh the conflict by our by our own standards. If we forget it's the Lord's battle, we'll begin to think about it from term our own terms. And once we then determine that this battle is on too huge of a scale for human ability, there's no way we can win this battle, we will then fall into many errors, one of which is expecting defeat where victory is sure, or for hoping for success in ways which lead to disaster using carnal means. Remember, the Israelites did this very thing before David. They fled from the Philistines. Why? Because they weighed the battle by human measures and not by God's. They looked at it and said, there's no way we can beat the Philistine army. Look, they even have this giant man with his big long spear and this big sword. And he has such thick armor. There is no way we can beat them. And so they ran away. They weighed it by human measures. Not by divine measures, not by God's measures. So we must be careful that we don't begin to do that. When God calls us to something, we can't, if we then have a worldly mindset or a self mindset, and we have self mixed into it and our motives and our goals, and we begin to forget that this is the Lord's battle that He's called us to, and we come to something in our life, and we go, There's no way I can complete this. There's no way I can love this person when I'm angry at them. There's no way I can offer forgiveness to this person when I'm angry at them. There's no way I can let go of the idol of of having children or being married or having a home. There's no way I can, you know, go into this place and preach the gospel to my family or my friends. I'm so terrified. There's no way I can do it. I need to back out. This army is too much. The Philistine host is before me and I must now flee. We'll forget that it's the Lord's battle. But if we go in there knowing I really, really don't like this person. What they did to me was horrible. It was hateful. It was mean. It was wrong. It was wicked. They lied about me. They betrayed me. Whatever it is you think happened, if you then go in there and go, okay, there's no way I'm going to be able to share the gospel to this person. I'm so terrified. I shake and I quake and I can't even really talk when I come to even share the gospel with this person. I'm so afraid. I'm so ashamed of myself. There's no way I can do it. There's no way I can forgive this person. There's no way I can do whatever. Then we then have to realize it's the Lord's battle. And once we do that, though, we'll, we'll learn, you know what? You're right. There is no way I can do this thing that God has called me to do. Therefore, I will not try to do it. I will rely on the power of God in and through me to do it. I will put on the Lord Jesus Christ like a vestment like a robe around me. And I will wear him. And I will live by the power of his Holy Spirit. And I will share the gospel with this person. I will offer forgiveness to this person. I will trust in God with my finances. Whatever it may be. The only time you should ever be weighing things by human measures to see how weak they are, how empty they are, so that in your weakness, Christ can be strong. So we need to make sure that We don't forget that the battle is the Lord's because then we'll begin to measure things from our perspective, not from God's. And if we forget that the battle is the Lord's, we can also become limp with fear. We'll be terrified, as I just described. 
for we will see that the battle must end in our destruction if the Lord's hand be not with us. Which is true. Which is true. If you look at your own salvation, you look at your spiritual life, you look at anything before you, from human perspective, it's terrifying. Why? Because it's impossible. You are going to hell. There is no way you can't go to hell because you're wicked, you're sinful, and you shall be consumed in the, just, the fires of justice, which God shall throw you into. Period. End of story. That is what you deserve. If you're only looking from a human perspective. If you forget that the battle is the Lord's, there is no way you can atone for your own sins. There's no way. Because even if you never sinned, yet you were born tainted by original sin. You are sin. Therefore, there is no hope, only fear, only certainty of destruction outside of the Lord. So when you remember that it's the Lord's battle, you don't have to be afraid that the battle can be lost. Keep in mind that the battle is of the Lord and then the weak knees will be strengthened. You will no longer fear. Dear church, since it is his battle, let us then be happy if we're personally defeated. Why? Jesus is still highly exalted. If we're serving him and bad things happen to us, well, Christ is still exalted, and either way, I'll praise God. The Lord is our avenger. He's, a, he's our avenger. Kings avenge their favored servants who are slain by their enemies in battle, do they not? How much more shall God, when his own children are assaulted by sin and Satan? Remember, Satan desired to sift Peter like wheat, but Christ strengthens him with these words. Remember what he spoke to him. He said, I have prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith fail not. Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Let us bless when cursed, dear Christian. Let us love when hated. Lend to when stolen from. In this we shall be like Jesus. And in this we shall give him room to fight his battle for us. Therefore we can be calm and confident always. For there is not the smallest cause for fear when we see the big picture that the battle is of the Lord our God. Dear church, do we know that the battle is the Lord's? Do we recognize this? Do we live like this? Are we on the conquering side, God's side? Why should we not look to him who is himself our salvation? He does not need our sword or our spirit or our spear. He doesn't need our sword or our spear. But he will himself deliver those who trust in him. Therefore, we do not need Saul's armor, but David's faith. David set his eyes upon God. Let us then set our eyes upon Christ, who is our victory. When we become timid or fearful, let us not ask, who am I? But rather, whose am I? Don't look to self. Eyes on Christ and off of you and what you have to offer. When you're timid, when you're fearful, when things seem overwhelming, when the battle seems like it can't be won, when the Philistines are over against you and their host seems numerous, don't ask the question, who am I? Rather, ask, whose am I? You are the Lord's. We are the Lord's as Christians. And we fight his battle by his strength, and he shall surely get the victory. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
We come before thee and we ask for thy reviving, strengthening presence, O God. We ask for thy power. Lord, that we would be equipped to serve thee, to know thee, to trust in thee. O God of our salvation, what are we without thee? What can we do without thee? O Lord, but even more, help us to believe and to know what can we not do with thee. By thy power, we can overcome all things. Give us faith then, therefore, to believe in thee, to trust thee. Help us. Help us, O God, and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.